Fantastic. Well, uh, my name's Riley, as I said, I'm the pastor of the church, and it's a joy to be here. Thankfully, I'm not the only one that has, uh, you know, leads this church. We have a great pastoral interns, Richie and Joel. We have a great deacon team. And then we have so many members of our church which have served so much to make this happen. Uh, And so pretty much I've done nothing really. Everyone else has done all the hard work. So anything that's worked today, thank David and Arby and the deacons and all of them. In fact, why don't we give them a thank right now. David's at the back there and Arby. And all the leadership teams and the sphere leaders. It's a big job uh, to leave a place where we were all set up every week and had hardly had to do everything to now starting all from scratch again, but, but it's really, really good. And the good news is, is that if revival breaks out, we can just keep going. It's just, a, just we could have hundreds here, so, you know, let's pray, pray to that end. Uh, we are in Romans. Uh, we're working our way through Romans section by section by section, and we're up to Romans chapter 2, verse 6 to 16. For those of you who are new to clue you in on the argument, that memory verse that we read is the theme of Romans, that salvation in Christ by faith is the only way. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins to explain why salvation is only in Christ. And he says, because God's wrath is coming against the world because of the fact that we are sinners. And he explains very clearly how the Gentile world, the Roman, Greek, pagan world, are sinful in, chapter, in verse 18 to 32. And then you could imagine the religious Jewish people who hear that, they were quite, you know, pompous and what you would imagine as a, a sort of a hypocritical person. They might have been yelling out, amen, brother, preach. You know, they loved hearing about the, the pagan Roman world being condemned. And then in chapter 2, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul turns and speaks to religious people. And he begins to show that irreligion, living however you want, won't save you, and religion, living, pretending you're living for God but actually living for yourself, won't save you. It doesn't matter if you're Jew by birth or if you're Roman by birth, there's only one way of salvation. And he's got kind of an extended argument from chapter 2 all the way up to 3.20 to make that point. And we're in part 2 of that argument, verse 6 to 16. And to pick it up, I'm going to read verse 5 through to 16. Uh, We use the English Standard Version, ESV. If you need a Bible, you can put your hands up and our our stewards can give you a Bible so that you can read along with me. We believe this is God's authoritative, infallible word that sits over us. We sit under it. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all have sinned, or for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
4. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you may bless the reading, the preaching, and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've entitled this message, Judgment Day. And perhaps you have seen many comics or TV shows or movies where there is this concept at the end of our life, we will face judgment from God. There'll be some kind of accounting, some kind of reckoning. But more often than not, the way it's depicted in our media is it's a a light-hearted thing. Uh, it's never really taken too seriously. It's often comical. You may have heard jokes where, you know, you stand before St. Peter at the pearly gates or, you know, various people get in or don't get in based on how they've acted. And it, they're usually funny, taking stabs at people or politicians or society, things like that. Comics and cartoons like The Simpsons and South Park and various ones make light of eternal judgment and wrath. TV shows based on it, don't ever paint the picture as it is in Scripture. And that's because it's an uncomfortable thought and reality, isn't it? Perhaps you felt it as we read this text. Words like wrath and fury. The idea of judgment and being held accountable for your deeds it's uncomfortable to read, it's uncomfortable for me to preach on, it's probably uncomfortable for you to hear, but here it is in Holy Scripture for us, because we need to hear this message. Every human on earth desperately needs to hear this message, because as verse 5 told us, there will be the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In the Bible, uh, it's referred to many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus spoke of a day when he will separate the sheep from the goats. Revelation speaks clearly of this day. The minor prophets speak clearly of the day. And today in our sermon, what I want to do is explain what will actually happen on that day. And use this Bible passage as a way of teaching us on that and explaining how we will be saved. You see, Paul has a particular aim in this passage. He wants to disavow anyone who thinks that they are safe from God's wrath based on any of their actions or good works or religiosity or what ethnic tribe they're from or if they're Jewish. He wants to disavow them. He wants them to say, no, 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 no. That is no sure foundation so that everyone will turn to Christ. Whether you were baptized as a child, you've been a member of a church, perhaps you consider yourself quite a virtuous and ethical person. Maybe you made a decision for Jesus at kick, 
you know, Katoomba Youth Convention one day back in your teens. Perhaps you were born into a Christian family, or perhaps you adhere to some other religion and you think all roads will lead to salvation in the end. It will all pan out. Well, my hope, my hope in this sermon is to reestablish Paul's point that there is no security for anyone outside of Christ. To do that, we're going to study verse 6 to 16, and we're going to ask one question. How will we all be judged? How will we all be judged? And I'm going to make four observations from this text and four answers to that question. So let's look at point number one. So how will we all be judged? Point one, we will be judged on that day. The first thing we need to know about how we'll be judged is that there will be a day when we will be judged. This isn't a metaphor. This isn't, um, you know, just a, a parable or an idea. This is a reality as sure as today is today. There will be a day at some point in human history when Jesus Christ will return and he will resurrect everyone from the dead and every single human being will be judged. They will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for their life. The Apostle Paul talked about this in Acts chapter 17. He just met these people in Athens. He's preaching in their famous Areopagus and he's speaking of their, their deities and their paganism and he, he connects with them and says, I see that you're very religious and he makes a connection. But then he doesn't fail to very quickly turn to judgment. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31. He says to the Athenians, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What will that day look like? Well, if you flick towards the you know, third last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, there's a harrowing picture of what this day will actually look like. And I wanted to read it because I want us to be resensitized to this reality after we're desensitized perhaps by media or even particular churches that hardly ever talk about this. This is John's vision given to him from God. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, everyone's included, standing before the throne. And the books were opened then another book was opened, which is the book of life, praise God. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
this picture paints an obvious reality. There's only two options in eternity. There's no middle ground, mysterious third way. There's no backdoor entrance. There's two realities. People will be judged and sent either to everlasting life or to everlasting punishment and death. It's frightening, isn't it? And how does Paul, or how does John and Paul in these two verses explain how we'll be judged? According to what they have done. So that leads us to the second point. So the first question was, how will we all be judged? Well, there will be a day. That's the point. Jesus will be the judge. There will be a day. Everyone will be gathered. No one will miss out. Everyone will have to give an account. Point two, how will we be judged? According to our works. Let's work our text in Romans chapter two a bit to see how this plays out. Paul, in verses six to eight, wants to show that everyone is going to be judged according to what they have done. Look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And then he gives two categories of people. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the scene is set. Everyone has to give an account some eternal life, some to wrath and fury, and it's based on what we have done. What we have to figure out, though, is who is Paul talking about in these two groups? There's really good commentators that split straight down the line on this one. I'm going to give you three options of what, how you could interpret these. Um, the first one is definitely wrong. Uh, and the first one I heard of this interpretation um, was when I was doing my HSC, so whenever that was, however many years that was, and I was studying with my mate Paul Terry, we needed to break, so we jumped in his tiny little like turquoise RAV4, and we were zooming around the Sutherland Shire area, just trying to, you know, have fun, and then we, we were, I don't know why, we thought, let's go drive by the Catholic Church. So we drove by the Catholic Church, and out the front of the Catholic Church, there's a, someone having a durry, having a smoke, and we thought, oh, that's interesting. So we went out and chatted, turned out it was the priest, and uh, that wasn't what we expected, and so we saw the priest, and we said, oh, hey, can we chat to you about... Jesus Christ and faith, and he's like, all right, come in. So we went into his house, and it was, you know, 9 p.m. at night or something. I don't know what he was thinking we were doing. Uh, and then we got chatting about salvation, and we were trying to lead him to Christ because we were at that time thinking he might not know the gospel. He might be Catholic, but it's very possible to be Catholic and actually not know of how to be saved. Anyway, he, he started talking about the gospel. We started talking about the gospel. And then he started to say, well, there's actually other ways for people to be saved other than Christ. And he, he read Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, and said that actually, if you read those verses, what they teach is that people who are seeking life and seeking good, whatever their religion, if they seek it with their whole heart and they're virtuous in it, then they will receive eternal life. So he believed as a Catholic priest that genuine Muslims seeking or genuine Hindus seeking, if they were really seeking, they would receive eternal life. It's quite an easy way to look at the world, isn't it? It's nice. It's like everyone gets there. If you try hard, it doesn't matter what religion, there's not any exclusivity. It's just everyone makes it as long as you're walking down that road. 
That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. It's a devilish doctrine uh, because it gives false assurance and it leaves people on their deathbeds thinking that they're safe when they're not. The second way you can read the verses, and great commentators like Tom Schreiner, John Piper, Christopher Ash, uh, they read it as what Paul is doing in this part here is he's actually talking about Christians that have been regenerate. They've come to know Christ, and so they, they actually are doing good works, but it's not salvation good works. It's, it's the fruit of their life. And it's evidence of their life that they're actually giving themselves to Christ. And then if they continue in the faith, they will receive the reward of eternal life. Now, what they're saying is true. It's just not what I think what this passage is teaching us uh, because of the whole argument of Romans. So I don't think we can apply verses 6 and 7 and verse 10 and verse 14 and 15 to us in a way of encouraging us toward good works. I don't think that's Paul's intention. So that leads me to the third group of people, uh, the third way of interpreting it. And what I think Paul is doing here is he's setting up a hypothetical case. Because he's trying, remember, to argue that there's no salvation other than in Jesus Christ. All the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, then he's going to launch the most glorious part in all the New Testament and explain the gospel to us in full. So what I think he's doing in verses 6, 7, verse 10, and etc. is showing that Imagine if someone were able to their whole life virtuously seek good, yearn after eternal life, always be righteous, well, then they would receive it, right? They would be declared righteous in God's sight. They've never sinned. The only problem with that is that no one has ever done it, save Christ. And so what Paul is trying to lead them down is to say, you think that there's this way, if you live virtuously and good enough, that you'll receive life outside of Christ? No, there's no way. Everyone will fall short. And that's why in verse 12, he goes straight to judgment and says, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will perish or will be judged by the law. So he's not trying to open up any ways of salvation outside of Christ. He's trying to show there's no hope. There's no other way. It's only one way. And he wants to drive it down again and again because What do we do as humans? We always want to butt against the truth and find some other way that's not God's way. So what does that, where does that leave us for, oh, actually, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there. Okay, so we will all be judged based on according to what we've done. That's what Paul's trying to say. If you've done evil, if you've been selfish, there will be wrath and fury. And that's meant to sit on us. Oh, that's me. If you're not in Christ, that's, that's you. That's your family members. That's any, any, anyone, any other religion, any other way. Jesus is so exclusive. He doesn't fit with our modern culture. He's not very 21st century in that respect. But this is the truth. We will be judged based on our works. And if we had to stand before God with all of our life, none of us would stand. Thirdly, how will we be judged? Well, number three, we'll be judged impartially. That's his point in verses 9 to 11. And again, he's trying to get to the Jewish people who thought by default they were saved. 
Verse 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. What Paul is trying to do is help them see that, yes, you're first in the covenant. You were God's covenant people. Um, but that means not only will you be blessed first, but you'll also be judged first as well. God's not going to give any free passes to anyone because you were born into a Christian home or because you were circumcised as a Jewish person or because you were baptized as a baby. There's no free passes. God is not partial. He's impartial. You will rise or fall based on your own works, for your own life, for your own motives, for everything that you've done, not someone else's work. So what about our works then? Uh, because, you know, sometimes we can think as you know, evangelical Christians, we kind of lose sight of works. Now, works are really, 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 really important. We are saved from this wrath that we're talking about, not to just live however we like or just to float about and just wait until we get to heaven. No, no, we are saved for good works. As a church, we are called to vigorously pursue good works, live righteously, live gloriously, live according to God. But our good works are not meant to earn our salvation, they're meant to prove it. The good works follow coming into Christ, they don't get you in. That's the fundamental religious distinction we have to make. And if you're someone that says you're a Christian, but you don't have any works to back it up, the Bible would say you're not a Christian. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17 makes it clear. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things for the body... What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so works are really, really important, but they don't get us in. They prove that we're already in. Now, if you're a religious person here today, I want to ask you, do you have works that prove that you have faith in Jesus Christ? What works would they be? It's not necessarily that you're a virtuous or nice person or you volunteer. The key works, the fundamental works, are works like this. Do you love Jesus? Not just do you adhere to Christianity, but do you love Jesus Christ? Is he your God? The first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first work that ought to come forth out of faith. Secondly, do you hate sin? If you're truly a Christian here this morning, you do not like sin. You read what God says, and you've got the Holy Spirit, and so you're convicted of sin. But maybe you, if you don't hate sin, you need to question whether or not you're actually a Christian. Thirdly, do you want to serve God's people? Jesus died to save his bride. He died to gather a people for himself. And therefore, if you are in Christ and you have Jesus' Holy Spirit with you, then you should want to be with God's people and love God's people and give your life for God's people because they were precious enough to Christ that he would die for them. So do you have love for God's people? Do you build your life around God's people or are you actually just about yourself? And coming to church is a private religious individual thing where you like to feel good. 
Jesus said to his followers, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we'll be judged impartially according to what we've done. But also we must know that we will actually, as Christians, be judged as well. Each one of us, it's very clear in the scriptures, will give an account of ourselves to God. But the good news is, is that we will not be judged for our salvation. That's already happened. We'll be judged for our reward. And that's another motive toward good works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4 to 5, he's talking about, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, that sounds like bad news, but look at the rest of the verse. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So friends, you will be judged for what you've done as a Christian, but not so God can punish you, but instead so God can reward you and give you treasure in heaven. So it works both ways. Everyone will be judged according to what they've done, but those who are in Christ will be rewarded based on their good works after being saved. Those who aren't in Christ will be judged for every evil deed and will have to give account for it in eternity. Okay, there's lots here, isn't there? It's quite complex. And last one, last one. You might think, well, how is this fair? Okay, point four, how will we all be judged? We'll be judged based on what we know. We will be judged based on what we know. Have a look at verse 12 to 16, and we'll kind of track Paul's argument here because he, he adds another layer in because the Jews at the time thought, I've got the law. We have, we know. We've got a Bible. We know what God wants. We're God's special people. He wrote us a letter, a love letter telling us we have his law, therefore we're good. And Paul wants to say, no, 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 no. Look at verse 12. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That means we'll be judged and sent to hell. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. How does this work? Well, verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So just coming to church, just going to synagogue, just hearing the sermons and things like that, that doesn't make you saved. That doesn't give you any blessing. It's only if you do it. And his point is, it's only if you do it right all the way. And the obvious point is, no Jew has ever done it right. No one will be justified by their works, save one, Jesus Christ. The Jews were a bit like, um, I don't know if you've ever flown much, but you might have a Qantas frequent flyer status I'm currently at Gold, uh, which is pretty, pretty funny because, you know, I just travel around doing some preaching and things like that. But I have Gold status, and that means that I can skip the queues and go straight to first-class check-in, priority check-in. And then I can go into, like, a, a lounge and things like that so I don't have to schlep it out with all the povo people at Macca's or whatever cafes are in the terminal. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the lounge, right? But the thing about the Qantas Frequent Flyer status is you have to maintain it. And if you don't do the miles, you don't get your status. And so soon I will lose my status because I won't be traveling as much. 
But the Jews are like the, the people that they think they've got this gold status card and they think they're going to get up to heaven and be like, gold, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll go straight through here. And then God's going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, that expired. You haven't done the miles. You don't have the status card anymore. You're going to have to account for yourself. Join the queue. That's the, the, the point Paul's trying to make. So when he talks about someone being justified by the law, it's a hypothetical situation. No one can be justified by obeying the law. So the Jews will be judged based on their knowledge of the law, and they knew it well, so they'll be judged even more strictly. But what about Gentiles? That's most of us, right? I don't know if there's anyone Jewish here today. What about those who aren't? ethnically Jews or religiously Jews. Well, verse 14 to 15 tells us how we'll be judged. Verse 14, for when the Gentiles, that's us, people from Parramatta, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Again, there's three options as to how people view this. Sometimes people think that moral Gentiles who just have a virtue ethic will be saved. Again, I want to say that is incorrect. Secondly, there are some who think, no, this is again talking about redeemed, saved Christians. Um, they, they use the language of Jeremiah 31. If you know that, the new covenant will be written on our hearts. Uh, again, I don't think he's talking about Christians in this passage. I think he's establishing that no one um, fully fulfills the law. So I think he's actually talking about non-Christians, like uh, non-Christian Gentiles. And what he's saying is that, and you've probably noticed this, that all over the world, people seem to have a genuine general ethic. There's a, there's a sense, like I've been to Africa, I've been to Asia, I've been to Europe. You go different places, and people generally don't murder regularly. Um, people generally think adultery is wrong. Uh, genuinely, people think stealing is wrong, most cultures. And what he's saying is that, even the Gentiles have God's law intrinsically on their conscience. And, and they know it. And, and their own conscience kind of tells them, you shouldn't do it. And so they don't do it. But then sometimes they do. And so then their conscience accuses them. But sometimes they do do it. And they're like, yeah, I'm a good person because I didn't steal that time. So then it excuses them. And what Paul's trying to say is they'll be judged according to what they have known about God. If they've never heard of Jesus Christ, they won't be judged for not believing in Jesus. But they'll be judged for the revelation they have received, the moral revelation that God's given them, and then they'll be held account to that. And even by their own standard, they'll be held accountable. Because even people who really try to be virtuous and moral at times slip up, don't they? At times they're selfish or rude or they have anger or racism. There's no one that kind of gets through that just really has a clean slate everywhere. And so God's judgment will be fair. No one will be able to say, but I didn't know. That's Paul's point here. Jew or Gentile, everyone will be judged based on what they know. So let's put the pieces together. We'll be judged on that day. It's certain. We'll be judged according to our works. 
will be judged impartially. There's no status symbol. There's no extra sneaky way in. And we'll be judged based on what we know. So the obvious thing is, well, how should we respond? What do we do with this? Well, firstly, if Judgment Day is real, and I believe it is, if Judgment Day is real, you need some way of escaping that judgment. Verse 16 says, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There will be a day when everything you've ever thought or done, it's like it's been written in a book, will be read out. Your secret motives if you're outside of Christ. Nothing will be left untouched. And verse 5 tells us that that secret, those hidden things, verse 16, verse 5, will be revealed publicly. So your private sin will be made public and you'll be held account. Not just like, oh, that's really awkward because all my friends and family, but the holy God of the universe who hates sin will publicly declare you unrighteous in his sight and will put you into the place of hell where there is eternal wrath, eternal fury, nothing good, devoid of all life, hope, and happiness, and it will never end. And that's, that's a terrible reality. And Paul isn't saying this to beat people up. He's saying this to save people, to help them realize you are in peril and so if you turn back to 1, chapter 1, verse 16, our memory verse, this is why the gospel is such good news. Because for in the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, the power of God for salvation to everyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. His I know most of us know this, but revel in it again. And if you're not yet a Christian, this is the best news you will ever hear. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you trust in him, you will be declared righteous on that day of judgment. Fully, final, complete. No sin that you do after you become a Christian will ever be brought up again. No sin you did before you became a Christian will ever be brought up again. Your book will only have in it the account of your righteous deeds that God is going to reward you for. But if you reject Christ and want to go it on your own and figure it out or take a gamble or hope that it's not true, then the book will have everything you've ever done and you'll have to give an account for it. And so can I plead with you, please consider Christ. Come to Christ. Put your faith in Christ and receive full righteousness, full justification this very day. And if you are already one of those blessed ones, and there's so many in this room that I know are for sure that you are saved, well, this this teaching that there will be judgment still affects us and helps us today. And I want to I talk about four ways in which it will bless you. Number one, the day of judgment, judgment day, can comfort you in times of injustice and distress. It's not something we talk about a whole lot. 
But there will be a day when every wicked deed and every vile person and every atrocity and every injustice will be accounted for. Wrath will come upon the evil. No one will get away with anything. And so you can have hope, even no matter what's happened to you or your family or your cultural background, you can have hope knowing that God will repay the wicked. Secondly, you can have comfort releasing you to forgive people rather than taking vengeance yourself. Romans 12 tells us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Therefore, we don't have to take vengeance. We don't, if someone wrongs us, we, don't, we can actually forgive them because we know that we, we have a life after this. There is a judgment day. And although we don't wish God's wrath upon anyone, we can have comfort in the Scriptures knowing that God will judge all sin and that we don't have to be judge, jury, and executor here on earth. He will do it right. He will do it. And so we can actually forgive people in confidence knowing that it will be accounted for one day. And we can forgive Christians knowing that on the cross, even those vile sins that someone might have sinned against you or your family were paid for righteously by Christ's death, substitutionary death on the cross. So it gives us comfort in times of forgiveness, uh, in times of injustice. It makes forgiveness possible. Final judgment or judgment day is a motive too for righteous living now. Knowing that you will give an account before God for all your deeds and that you'll be rewarded for your good deeds ought to give you motivation to live your life for that day. The Bible repeatedly uses motivation of your own reward to prompt you toward righteous living, not for your salvation, but for your commendation. So you can keep going hard. You can serve in secret. You can give away your money. You can look after people and go for it, knowing that even if you never get reward here and now, no one sees, no one knows, he sees, he will reveal it. The secret righteousness that no one knew will be commended on the last day. And let it motivate you to faith and good deeds and righteous living in our city, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. And let it be a motive for mission, the fourth and final way. I've been convicted that I just, I mustn't love the ungodly and the sinners enough. I mustn't love people that are outside of Christ enough because I'm not motivated enough to tell them that I really believe they will be judged and that they need Christ. So let Judgment Day be a motivation for you to go in urgency and in faith to proclaim hope and good news and kindness and mercy and the grace of God to those you love the most. Judgment Day is often trivialized because it's so horrible to think of. But trivializing it won't make it go away. There is a day when God's righteous wrath will be revealed. All those who are outside of Christ will be judged for their sins and held account. All those who have put their faith in Christ will be rewarded with eternal life. Where do you sit this Sunday morning, Sunday, 22nd of October? 
Are you sure that you will receive reward and not justice on that day? May I commend to you, trust in Christ. Come to him and you shall live. Let me pray for us. Lord, we commit to you this heavy message. This is your word. This is your plan. This is how you want eternity to run. And we submit to that as your people. But we thank you, Lord, that you are not only a God of wrath and judgment, but one of abounding, steadfast love. In fact, when you revealed yourself to Moses, you accented your love more than your wrath. So we thank you that you've had mercy upon us who are in Christ. And I ask, and we ask, that if there are any here, young or old, religious or irreligious, who are outside of Christ, that they would come to him, put their faith in him this very moment, and be saved. And Lord, I pray and ask that you would use this image of standing before you in the great white throne and the judgment according to what we have done. May it motivate us to live for you, knowing that we anticipate reward and celebration and uh, commendation at the end, where we will hear the great words, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you, Lord, that we have no fear of wrath. It's paid in full, and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.